Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for February 2024. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. So we've got five papers for you today summarising the best of this issue and it really is quite an exciting issue. I think we've got an unprecedented number of RCTs in this issue. I think there were four randomised controlled trials published in the journal in this very issue, which uh, is quite something, Sarah. Absolutely. And um, it's uh, a lot about drugs this month. I'm not entirely sure why, but we're going to be learning about all sorts of drugs that we use all the time and some that we don't. That's very true. The first one is a drug of recreation, but not in this context. We're talking about free flow nitrous oxide for sedation in the paediatric emergency department. And Sarah, you've taken a look at this paper, which comes from Sean Croven and colleagues. Yeah, so uh, our Irish colleagues looked at the safety and efficacy of nitrous oxide uh, for procedural sedation in the paediatric emergency department, a decade of outcomes. So as I'm sure our listeners know, and all over the world, nitrous oxide is used often for Uh, both in adults and children, for sedations, for lots of procedures that involve pain. And they did a retrospective review of their one site, looking at what's happened with all their patients that they've used um, nitrous oxide on. So, um, you know, standard sort of retrospective review. They went back through all the notes. They had a look and they found that they did 831. So I worked that out at about 83 a year. So maybe one to two patients a week that roughly works out that they're doing sedation using nitrous and they often use that in a combination with intranasal fentanyl. Does that feel the same for your experience Rick? Yeah so I no longer practice in my paediatric emergency department but we do have free flow Entinox in our paediatric emergency department and I always found it very useful Uh, for sedation. We didn't tend to use it alongside the intranasal opiates. We tended to use either or. So it's interesting to see that they were often using both. It makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, so with their 831 procedural sedations, uh, they had 358 that involved nitrous and intranasal fentanyl. They found that nurses generally managed this sedation So around 88% of these cases were managed by nurses um, and sedation was found to be successful uh, 97.4%. So 809 of the uh, 831 cases um, with a combination particularly of the nitrous oxide and the intranasal fentanyl. And they found by combining the two that this created a deeper sedation score. They found no um, serious adverse events Um, The only thing that was really interesting, which um, they reported that's not really been seen before, is that the higher the dose of the nitrous and the higher the dose of the intranasal fentanyl, they found that they had a lot of vomiting. So 113 or just over 13.5% of cases found um, that they had vomiting. But other than that, um, you know, it was pretty pretty standard really and um, I think this paper does suggest that you know entonox and maybe intranasal fentanyl could be potentially useful but probably still needs a little bit of exploration particularly um, we'll come on to talk a little bit about uh, methoxyfluorane or penthrox um, which is currently being trialled in the UK in children for similar procedures. I don't know what your feelings were about this Rick. Well it's a large case series 
and I'm not sure that free-flow nitrous oxide is commonly used in paediatric emergency departments in the UK. I think we're quite lucky to have it in Manchester. So it's quite interesting to hear or to read about their experience with such a large case series that they've been using it as routine and they've got such good outcomes. The complication rate with side effects of vomiting, maybe because of the use of the opiate in addition to the nitrous oxide. Um, My own personal experience was that this is an agent that often got uh, us to be able to give the children a very nice experience. If we use intravenous sedation, you have to cannulate and um, there's a whole extra layer of uh, trauma for the for the patients, even though it's mild trauma just for the cannulation. But the, the convenience of being, getting, uh, being able to give an inhaled sedative and the control that you have over the antinox to get the level of sedation right is um, very attractive. Absolutely. And I think you're going on to some fentanyl that I've not come across before, Rick. Yeah, so sticking with the uh, sort of analgesic uh, and intranasal particularly theme that we've got with the podcast at the start, uh, I've taken a look at a paper from Belgium looking at the effect of intranasal sufentanil on acute post-traumatic pain in the emergency department. And this is one of those randomised controlled trials that I told you about. So it's a randomised controlled trial at a single centre. The patients, those who sustained trauma, and they had a pain score of at least 7 out of 10. They were all given either an anti-inflammatory or paracetamol at baseline. And then they were randomised either to receive this investigational treatment, which was intranasal sufentanil, obviously an opiate, or to the control group, in which case they would receive either an oral or an intravenous opioid medication as an alternative. The the patients were randomised, but there was no blinding because it's pretty difficult to blind. I mean, you could have used essentially, you know, a matching placebo so that if you're getting uh, intranasal fentanyl in the intervention group, the control group get an intranasal placebo, but they didn't do that. It was open label, so there's no blinding. The primary outcome of the trial that they were looking for was the visual analogue scale pain score that's commonly used to measure pain, and they measured that at 15 to 20 minutes after the initial administration, and then they again measured it at 60 minutes. And what they found is that in the fentanyl group, the pain score was significantly lower at 15 to 20 minutes. So the VAS pain score went down, went down by an average of three points in the intervention group versus 1.5 points in the control group. And that was statistically significant. And they found the same thing after one hour. So when they measured the pain scores again at one hour, the same effect was found. There were similar levels of rescue analgesia in the two groups. And uh, side effects was interesting. So in your paper, Sarah, you talked about the high proportion of patients who vomited, perhaps due to the intranasal opiate that they'd received. Well, there were also side effects reported in this trial, and they were more common in the intervention group. In fact, 71% of the patients who received intranasal sufentanil reported feeling dizzy. So that was quite a common side effect. The analgesia that the control group received is also quite interesting. So you might think that this paper shows you that the intranasal sufentanil is better than IV morphine. The only caveat is that only 13.8% of patients in the control group actually received IV morphine. 
So most of the patients in the control group had received oral analgesia. And you might say, well, I kind of would expect that an intranasal analgesic would work faster at 15 to 20 minutes than the oral analgesic. It's worth pointing out, though, that that persisted at 60 minutes, so they're still better. So there we are, an RCT showing favourable results for intranasal sufentanil. Is that something that you'd consider using in your practice, Sarah? Well, I had to look it up. It didn't exist in the BNF, if I'm honest. Um, it's in the British National Formary, so it's not a drug we can actually prescribe in the UK. It doesn't exist. Um, it was really interesting that they picked sufentanil versus fentanyl or, you know, I use a lot of intranasal fentanyl, particularly in paediatrics, so that, that works quite well and that has really positive effects and can do an awful lot of things with that. I guess for me, I would want to know a little bit more about fentanyl versus sufentanil as opposed to, or, you know, morphine versus sufentanil. It's not, as you say, it's, this isn't quite as clear cut. Um, positive results and it may be that that's the only type of fentanyl that they've got available for whatever reason. So um, I think it's worth exploring a bit more. It is. And even if the exact opiate isn't available for us in the UK, I guess we could, like you say, use a similar opiate agent intranasally. But they show superior analgesic effects. Do you think it's a fair trade-off to get the analgesic effect versus the side effect of dizziness? Um, I think if my arm is broken and it needs to be straight... <laughs> Um, potentially I might say yes um you know I think ah, dizziness is um such a difficult symptom or side effect to quantify and um it's a broad term so it would be interesting to know what was meant by that yeah I agree with you on that one I think it's very difficult just from the findings of the paper to know how disturbing that was for patients it would be really interesting in a future trial to ask patients you know what they thought of it overall were you pleased with that with that sort of a sort of patient satisfaction with the overall experience and see how that compares between the two groups and then you can get an idea of how distressing that dizziness really was absolutely and i think that leads on probably to my next paper which is looking at the environmental impact of low-dose methoxyfluorane, so penthrox, versus nitrous oxide, so entonox for analgesia. How green is the green whistle? And this is a fantastic paper of, uh, that we don't see often by Martindale at all, looking at the environmental impact of some of the things that we do. Increasingly, and particularly with the National Health Service, there is a drive to reduce our carbon admissions, carbon output. Um, so understanding the drugs that we use and what the impact is, is clearly really important for us um, as not only healthcare clinicians, but, you know, for future generations going forward. Nitrous oxide, as we know, is used extensively and penthroxes or methoxyfluorane has been around probably for the last 10 or 20 years. And it's particularly become common in the last five or 10 years within the UK. And what they did within this paper was did a life cycle impact assessment of methoxyfluorane versus uh, nitrous oxide. This was something I had to look up, I've got to be honest. And essentially it's trying to, in carbon dioxide terms, estimate how much carbon dioxide output comes from each of these things that we use. And it's talking about sort of kilograms of carbon dioxide. So, they found that methoxyfluorane, so penthrox, had a lower LCIA impact factor by 
times less CO2 than the equivalent of nitrous oxide or entonox at a 50-50 ratio. So what does that mean? I made some made some maths here because that was like, oh, I'm not sure what that means. So Penthrox has a climate change impact of 0.8 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide has a 98.89 kilogram carbon dioxide impact and 7 milligrams of intravenous morphine being given is 0.01 kilograms. The bottom line is, whilst nitrous oxide in the previous paper, you know, potentially has a good analgesic effect, that is quite a lot of carbon dioxide it's producing, which could potentially have a huge environmental impact. So should we just be using Penthrox to improve our environmental footprint in our departments? What do you think, Rick? Well, first of all, I was fascinated by the methods of this study. I think we're probably going to see more and more research like this, where they try and quantify the carbon footprint of different technologies. And they've looked at all the manufacturing processes involved in producing Penthrox and getting it to the shop floor where we use it for patients. And having quantified every step, I'm really surprised that the carbon footprint is actually so low for Penthrox. I expected it to be much higher. And I'm also surprised that the carbon footprint of nitrous oxide was so high. I knew it would be high, but when you said it was 98.89 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents, the authors have put that into context with some things from our sort of day-to-day lives for us. And that 98.89 figure compares to a figure of, for, for a flight from Newcastle to London, the figure comes to 120. So, Half an hour's use of nitrous oxide in the emergency department is almost the same as a flight from Newcastle to London, which is quite incredible. I did wonder whether all of the assumptions that were used in the paper actually reflected what we would do in our practice. So, for example, they set the flow rate of nitrous to 14 litres per minute. I'm not sure we'd use it quite that high in practice. Certainly, I wouldn't have done that when I used free flow nitrous oxide. But even still, that's a staggering carbon footprint. And it just shows that, you know, we do need to think of more environmentally friendly approaches wherever possible. So puts the results of our first study in, in some context. Yeah. And I think for me, I, if I'm honest, not even thought about it with some of our more common drugs, such as IV morphine, Like I give out IV morphine quite often and that will add up over time, won't it? Absolutely. So put that all together. You know, we've got the safety of a nitrous oxide sedation program in the first study and um, we know how attractive it is for use in a paediatric population. We're not saying you should suddenly stop using it, but definitely think about it given its carbon footprint. Moving on, we have got another Agent beginning with nitro, it's nitroglycerin this time that we're looking at for heart failure. So I've looked at another randomised controlled trial, this time from India, and they were deciding to look at the efficacy of GTN, or glycerol trinitrate, when used in a high dose versus GTN used in a low dose for patients with acute heart failure. And they were looking at patients with a particular type of acute heart failure, that's uh, SCAPE. S-C-A-P-E, so that's sympathetic crushing acute pulmonary edema. And those are the patients that we see with sudden pulmonary edema, so they're, they're in a you know, massive left ventricular failure, they're hypoxic, they are in respiratory distress, and they have hypertension. 
there's a high afterload in these patients. Those are the this is the target population for the trial. And so the authors have had a look at whether it would be better to give a high dose of GTN versus a low dose of GTN. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context on that. First of all, if you are experienced with making up GTN infusions, you'll know that you put 50 milligrams of GTN in 50 mils, standard, okay? And you put that in your syringe driver and you run that through. Now, the starting dose that I was taught, always taught to use was one mil per hour. So we're basically getting one milligram per hour in that infusion. And remember, you often send, set that up through a volumetric pump and the dead space of the giving set could be as much as 20 mils. So if you're giving one mil per hour, unless you've flushed the line with the GTN, it might take you quite a while to actually administer any medication. Even if you have appropriately flushed the line, then we're getting a pretty small dose to the patients at first and we titrate it upwards. The question the authors are asking is, would it be better to give the high dose immediately? Sarah, what's your experience with GTN in acute heart failure? So my actual practical experience is I, for, for many years, would sort of give quite high dose to begin with and then titrate it down very quickly. Interestingly, I'm currently revising for my exams, which made me have to relook at the guidance for this. And I was just relooking at this now as we were talking. And NICE guidance actually says don't offer nitrates routinely to people with acute heart failure. So my experience has generally been very positive for the right patient. But the guidance, the national guidance actually suggests in other than in certain circumstances, don't offer it routinely. So I'm a bit... Uh, unsure as to what is the best option going forward, really. Yeah, well, uh, this paper can't answer that age-old question about whether we should use furosemide or GTN for acute heart failure, unfortunately. And it's very difficult to challenge that because furosemide is such an established treatment for acute heart failure. But it does give us some really important evidence. And just wait till you get to the end of this and you'll see it, it, it will give you a quite clear answer, in my opinion, about what we should be doing. So, the authors have run an RCT. It was open label and it was at a single centre in India. They've included patients with SCAPE. So they are patients in acute heart failure who are hypertensive, significantly hypertensive. They had a tachypnea and they had hypoxia. They were then randomised to either receive high dose or the low dose GTN. So with the high dose GTN, they received a bolus initially and then they received a, a more rapid rate of infusion than in the low-dose group, which the, in the low-dose group, they received a, a, a rate that was similar to what we would conventionally use in the UK at one mil per hour. They then followed the patients up for the co-primary outcomes of symptom resolution at six hours and at 12 hours. And they had a really robust definition for what constituted symptom resolution, and it... Uh, it entailed a mixture of resolution of the patient's dyspnea, in the patient's opinion, the hypoxia, which is more objective, and the blood pressure, which of course is also more objective. And the key finding of this trial was that in the high-dose group, there was significantly better symptom resolution at six hours and at 12 hours. Uh, the, the authors have given us survival curves and you can see clear separation of the curves in the high dose group. Those symptoms are clearly getting better much earlier. So in terms of the primary outcome, this is a successful trial. It looks like, you know, high dose GTN is clearly better than low dose. 
and any secondary outcomes? Yeah, and I think that's a really important question for us uh, because symptom resolution is important, but we also want to know about the objective things like uh, did the patients have major adverse cardiac events, for example, or did they stay in hospital any less if they had the high dose? And really interestingly, with all the secondary outcomes, the high-dose group also did better. So there were less major adverse cardiac events in the high-dose groups than that was statistically significant. Also, more patients were discharged directly from the ED in the high-dose group. There was a shorter length of stay in the emergency department in the high-dose group by an average of 13 hours in total. And there was a shorter length of stay in the hospital by an average of 60 hours in the high dose group so spectacular difference really between the two groups so given this uh, rct uh, with quite clear findings and significant differences between the groups is there any reason why we shouldn't give high dose gtn to the patients with scape well i mean that sort of confirms my practice and which my practice has been um i guess you wonder why it's not part of national guidance so I guess this is an area of continued emerging research and this is probably one study that is going to help form an opinion on that for our national guidance. But, you know, I clinically, as I said before, find high-dose nitrates work really, really well. Um, you have to pick the right patient, though. They don't work for everyone. Yeah, exactly. And it's really important to emphasise this was scape patients so there particularly hypertensive patients with crashing pulmonary edema. But, I mean, I would take these findings and use them for patients who fit that those criteria uh, in the emergency department without question now. I mean, I, th- th- this is, I, I'd like to see if there are other trials with similar findings, because, of course, this was a single-centre study. But these findings are really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So, moving on back to the theme of drugs... <laughs> It's been a very drug pharmacology themed episode. Um, And this is a research letter that we've had come into us this month that has had a um, a press release with it. So people may be aware of this. Um, And the paper's titled Trip Killers, a concerning practice associated with psychedelic drug use. Um, So this was done by Yates and Mellon, um, who did something that I did not know an awful lot about. I'd never really considered. And that was look at this poorly published area of research around the use of um, stopping a bad trip, so trip killers. So we do see, you know, in all emergency departments, lots of people coming in who have taken drugs, often recreationally, um, for that high, but they come in so high that, you know, they have, you know, horrendous symptoms such as psychosis, agitation, distress. Um, And they report within this paper that studies have suggested sort of 8.4% of drug-related presentations to European emergency department involve these psychedelics. But stopping a bad trip, you won't really find that anywhere in any legitimate sources. It's certainly not on the National Health website or any drug advice websites anywhere really around the world. Um, So what they did was, you know, they are aware, looking at the internet, that there are multiple ways to stop a bad trip to, you know, sort of reduce the difficulties associated of sort of psychosis and agitation. But they looked through Reddit. So for our listeners out there who don't know what Reddit is, Reddit is a social media platform where you post stuff. It's anonymous and there's lots on there, you know, good things, bad things. But essentially they trawled through Reddit 
exploring what was publicly available under the topic of trip killers for recreational drugs. Unsurprising. Oh, actually, let me ask you, Rick, first, before I say unsurprising, what do you think the most recommended drugs were (laughs) to stopping a bad trip? Well, I would say benzodiazepines have got to be the top one, surely. Yeah, absolutely. Benzodiazepines, which is what you'd use clinically, obviously, if somebody's, you know, jumping off the ceiling. So it was benzodiazepines and antipsychotics. However, what they also did was they were able to look at what doses were recommended. And there were some staggering dose ranges. So the t- the trip killer doses recommended by Reddit users. So Alprazam, so 0.5 to 4 milligrams. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, diazepam, 3 to 20 milligrams. Quetiapine, 25 to 600 milligrams. And Trazodone, 50 to 150 milligrams. So phenomenal amounts of drugs. Um, Quetiapine, my probably clinically would never use nor would I use trazodone um, but I definitely use be using some of those benzodiazepines um, clinically but interestingly what I think this work suggests and the authors highlight is that probably as emergency medicine clinicians if we're seeing people coming in using psychedelic drugs and having the effects of that we probably need to be asking them are you do you use or have you come across any information around drugs to stop that bad trip I was just thoroughly fascinated by this letter that was in the journal this month. I'm also thoroughly fascinated by it for two reasons. One is the methods to use Reddit as a source of information for a medical paper. And I think that was really innovative as an approach. Do you know what? There's so much out there. There are so There's so much on DIY medical procedures and, and such like on, on platforms like Reddit. So it's really interesting to see this one on trip killers. And second, I was surprised by the findings of this uh, piece of research, uh, particularly, as you say, with the doses, up to 600 milligrams of quetiapine. Just to put that into context, the starting dose of quetiapine would be 25 milligrams twice per day for an adult. Yeah. And also, (laughs) these drugs would be obtained illegally because we won't be prescribing them. These are people finding these drugs if they can guarantee the authenticity of them off, you know, in in similar means. Absolutely. And you know what? If they come to us in the emergency department, we might not know that they've taken that. So the patient might be unconscious, for example, and we might be about to administer medications. We are looking after them, not knowing what they've taken. And I just, I guess this is helpful just to steer us in the direction of what might have been taken. And the fact that there are drugs like antipsychotics, for example, that have very important considerations for the management of overdose. Uh, It's really helpful for us to know. So that brings us to the end of February's podcast. Before we go today, just like to say that we are very privileged that the BMJ team have supported this podcast so well and have got it on so many platforms. So the, the podcast is available on multiple different platforms. We would really like it if you subscribe to us and perhaps check out some of the past issues if you've not been a regular listener. We also would really welcome your feedback. So you can now add feedback on Spotify. So if you listen to the podcast via Spotify, for example, there is a box there that allows you to give feedback. We will see that and we would be really interested to have your feedback. 
Sarah, I guess you'd also be interested in in hearing something like that. Yeah, absolutely. If there's any comments, queries, questions, suggestions, you know, by all means, get hold of the EMJ account uh, via um, Facebook or X, or formerly known as Twitter, and all the podcast sites have the ability for us to get feedback or likes. So let us know what you think. And thank you for listening. We hope to hope you'll join us for March's podcast. Yeah, until March, see you soon. Take care.